Hello. How is everybody doing? Wonderful. That is what I like to hear. For those who don't know me, my name is Eric Upton. I'm the middle school pastor here at Bridgeway. Honored to be the middle school pastor here at Bridgeway and excited to be with you and uh, excited for what God has for us. So with that, uh, just want to dive into what we have going on. A little bit of information about myself. Um, I happen to be one of those weird creative people where I can walk through life, I can walk through different scenarios and different instances and even different places, and I'll look at things with kind of a, a different eye or a different perspective, if you will. Um, to give you an example of this is one of you might be walking through the aisles at Home Depot, let's say. You'll walk through Home Depot and you'll see uh, on this particular aisle, you'll look down and you'll see a box that has um, plastic wrap in it. And you'll look at that and you'll say, well, what a wonderful object that I can bring home with me and use to tarp down my floor so that paint does not splatter off of my walls or the object that I'm painting and get onto my carpet. What a, what a great thing. Now, I would be walking down that exact same aisle looking at that exact same object and I would pick that up and I would say, this combined with dish soap would make make the perfect slip and slide that is 200 feet long. And, and so you kind of see where I'm going with this. You would walk down the aisles at Target, and on one aisle you would see a, uh, boxes of Kleenex, perhaps. And, and then down another aisle at Target or, or at a grocery store, you would see bags of flour, and you'd pick those items up. And as you pick up the Kleenex, you would say, what a wonderful object I can blow my nose into. And with a flour, you could say, what a wonderful object that I can use to make cookies or cakes or brownies or whatever else. Now, I would see those two objects, and I would say these would make the perfect hand grenades for junior hires to throw at each other at the park. And so I kind of look at things a little bit differently, where as you would see normal everyday household objects, I would see opportunities for fun, for engagement, or uh, perhaps to ruin someone's eyesight for the rest of their life. So uh, that's just kind of how I walk through life. And to be honest with you, uh, I experienced something a little unique right after getting hired here. You see, uh, a case in point as to my creativity was uh, this instance on a Wednesday night. I was looking around the wonderful storage area that we have here at the church and looking at the various objects and, and even made a list myself and handed that to the administrative assistant that we had. And, and she came back with all the supplies that we needed and I gathered some from storage. And as I was looking at all of these things, my, ma my mind began to spin and I came up with a very creative, very inventive game that we were going to play on that particular evening of youth ministry. And I'm excited to inform you and excited to tell you that this was probably one of the greatest games that we have ever played in Edge Middle School ministry. It also happens to be the one and only time that we were ever permitted to play this game. I'm going to tell you why in a second. So here's how this game worked. We created out in the front parking lot area uh, a grid of sorts out of uh, chalk or or something like that. And inside that grid, we had students sitting in each one of those squares. And then we gave those students kind of a plastic bag to wear and, and a plate, like a foam or paper plate to hold above their heads. Now, on those paper plates, we had written different items, different objects and, and whatnot. And I'll get to those in a second. We had them kind of hold that over their head. Now, down on the other end of the parking lot, we handed a completely separate group of students some eggs, you know, everyday, natural, un, unboiled eggs. And uh, their job was to throw the eggs across the parking lot at the group of students that were sitting in that grid holding the paper plates with items listed on it above their heads. 
Now, here's kind of how the game worked. The best way to describe it in my mind is if you pictured a game of battleship mixed with a game of tic-tac-toe, kind of, but in real life. And so what we did is we separated the students into teams, and we gave each team, uh, some of their students had eggs to throw at the the students sitting at the grid, and um, the other students were in charge of pinatas that we gave them. We gave each team a pinata that represented their team's life, essentially. And the rules of the game were very simple. It was, you have a pinata that you want to survive and last as long as possible. And it will be your job to collect items that you can use to destroy another team's pinata as fast as possible. So you're going to take turns and we're going to destroy pinatas and, and protect pinatas and whatnot. So a team member would throw an egg and it would land on a student whose paper plate said something, you know, everyday and normal and average like um, ninja sword, perhaps. And, uh, and so that team would get use of a ninja sword against another team's pinata. And then, you know, they'd throw an egg and it might land on the student whose, uh, whose paper plate said, you know, blowtorch or something like that. And um, you're laughing because you don't think I actually brought those things, which I actually did bring to this particular event. And so here we are with a ton of students out in our parking lot. They've got pinatas. They're, they're protecting and covering these pinatas and throwing eggs at each other. And then we get to kind of the, the death match, if you will. And that's where all our pinatas have to stand the test of the other teams. And so each team would get up and they would choose which weapon they wanted to use and which team they wanted to attack. And so we had our eighth grade guys kind of get up and say, we're going to go after, you guessed it, our sixth grade girls pinata. And so they chose the sixth grade girls. And so their pinata got up there and they took the the ninja sword and they just started hacking away at that pinata as best they could. Now, what I haven't told you yet is how we strung those pinatas up so that the students could attack them. Well, uh, inside this church, Bridgeway has a phenomenal invention that I've fallen in love with over the years, and it's called a scissor lift. And if you don't know what a scissor lift is, uh, picture a very, very large like go-kart thing um, that you can drive around, but then you flip a toggle and you pull back on the handle, and this thing will lift you very, very high up in the air. It's awesome. And so I drove the scissor lift out into the parking lot and this is what I would ride up and down and lift the pinatas with and hold out from the scissor lift uh, attached to a string. So uh, one of our groups did the ninja sword on, onto the pinata and it was amazing fun to watch that happen. And then sure enough, our eighth grade guys decided that the next weapon of choice that they would like to use would be the blowtorch. Now, don't worry, we did not hand a blowtorch to an eighth grade boy. You don't have to freak out about that. I knew better than that. What we did do is come up with a staff member who would use the blowtorch on that pinata. So the staff member comes up, they grab the blowtorch, they get near the pinata, they light the blowtorch on fire, and they hold that torch next to the pinata. And as you can imagine, that pinata did not last very long at all. All right? Here's where it gets really interesting. In that very moment that we were lighting the pinata on fire, me and another staff member were hoisted up into the air on an even pavement, standing on a scissor lift with many, many kids standing around the, the thing. I put cones around to keep a good berth, but they were around there. And uh, as that was happening, in that very moment, uh, one of our senior pastors uh, came rolling into the parking lot to observe what was going on. Uh, along with him in his car was the gentleman who is in charge of the church's insurance. And so you can imagine why we don't play that game anymore. In addition to that, I learned why we don't play that game anymore in a fantastically uh, gracious email that I received the very next day. But here's what I learned in looking back at that experience. See, I'm a creative guy, and God's a God of creativity, and he enjoys seeing us be creative with the things that are around us and the things that we're a part of and the things that he's given us. 
But it doesn't always apply to everything. You see, we have been given Christ's ministry with the charge of taking it upon ourselves to continue his work. See, Jesus calls each of us to follow the example that he set before us and to use the methods, tools, and ministry that he's given us to lead people to him so that they might see what we have and want to receive it too. See, Christ's ministry was all about forgiveness and the humble serving of everybody. Our problem lies here. We've taken the thing that Jesus has given us access to, we've taken his forgiveness, his example of service, and his ministry, and used it in ways that it was never meant to be used. Instead of constantly finding or seeking opportunities to serve everyone that we come into contact with, we serve ourselves. Instead of offering forgiveness as it was freely offered to us, we peddle a cheap inversion that comes with strings, contingencies, and fine print. You see, a scissor lift was not meant to be hoisted up so that middle school students could light a pinata on fire, hit it with a ninja sword, or knock it around with a baseball bat. See, a scissor lift was designed to elevate a person so that they could access things that on their own they would never be able to access. And likewise, the ministry of Jesus is for us to serve others and offer the same forgiveness that was freely given to us. And the ministry that Jesus Christ gave us was given to us so that we might lift Christ's name higher and show others around us that through him, they too can access things that on our own we wouldn't be able to. The ministry of Jesus Christ is to serve others and offer the same forgiveness that was freely given to us. And Jesus talks about this idea, this ministry that he's passed along to us in a number of different venues and occasions throughout Scripture. If you turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and or Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we come across a couple of instances where Jesus begins to talk about this idea of forgiveness and just how important it is to him. Mark 11:25 says this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And Matthew 6:14 through 15 says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, for some of us, we read these scriptures, we read Jesus' words, and it's a bit scary, isn't it? Some of us have a hard time with this. We tend to hold on to even the smallest of slights that we have against other people. We go to a restaurant, and as we're sitting, and the wait continues and continues and continues, and our food continues to take forever, and then when it does arrive, it's cold or wrong or not what we ordered, or whatever it is. And in that moment, our pride swells up and we take that on as an opportunity or an excuse for us to hold a grudge against the server, the cooks, the manager, the restaurant, all things food service, whatever we want. We're driving down the road. Someone decides to tell us hello and wave to us, but only uses one finger when they do it. And instantly our pride wells up. Who do they think they are? 
you're going to come at me like that? You're going to drive down my freeway, cut in front of my car, and then you're going to have the guts to wave hello to me in that way? And we get, we get this righteous indignation. We get this swelling of pride. Like, who are they to do that to us? And sometimes we let that build and we then in that moment determine that any and all who drive a blue Honda Accord must be from the devil because that is the only logical explanation and thus they are. And so we categorize and write them off forever holding a bitterness in our hearts towards that person and any and all who act like it. Or we go to the greatest place on earth, the Department of Motor Vehicles. And in 10 minutes... In 10 minutes, it's amazing to see how our attitudes can go from this happy-go-lucky light of the world, salt of the earth, Jesus in skin, to wanting to literally murder somebody that works behind that desk. (laughs) And we think, why is this taking so long? Don't they know I have this going on? Why did she talk to me like that? Why didn't she tell me that was the form that I actually needed when that guy over there told me this was the form that I needed? If those two people would have an actual conversation, perhaps the government would work properly. And we get upset and we get angry and we hold on to it. And the funny thing is, those examples, those, those are the little things. Those are the little things. Those aren't even the things that have to do with the person or the people that are flashing through your mind right now. Those aren't the issues or the items that you have with the names that are circling through your head. The person whose image sprang up in your heart as you found out that we were talking about forgiveness. Because if all I did was get up here and speak about the little things, well, we could probably deal with that and manage that. But in this scripture, Jesus says some pretty potent things. I think what stands out to me is probably the same thing that stands out to you. And it's this question. Does our forgiveness from God really depend on our forgiveness of others? Would God really hold back his forgiveness from us simply because we held up back our forgiveness from others? Is that what Jesus is saying? Let's take a look. The first thing to note is this. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, when it begins and says, For if you forgive others their trespasses... The word if there is often translated to act as a degree comparison type of word. In other words, it's like saying in proportion as. What Jesus is saying here is in the proportion you use to forgive others, your heavenly father will also forgive you. The measure to which you offer the forgiveness that was first given you is the measure to which you understand the forgiveness that God gave you. The idea that Jesus is saying there is a way to lose your salvation is the wrong way to look at this scripture. If you're looking at these verses and thinking that in here lies a formula of how to retain or keep or not lose your salvation, then you've kind of missed the point and you're looking at it from the wrong angle. This verse is meant to cause each of us to ask the question, am I giving to others the same daily grace and forgiveness that is given to me by God? The grace and forgiveness that I hand out, is it the same that I received? 
And that's an evaluation question. It's not meant to become this measuring stick that you hold up to everyone else's life around the church and wonder if they're really saved. (laughs) It's your own evaluation tool. Am I handing out the same grace and forgiveness that, that God gave to me? Here's a picture for you of of what I mean. See, in ancient times, it was customary that before you entered into someone's home, you would have your feet washed or you would wash your own feet. This would happen in one of two ways. Traditionally speaking, there would be a bowl of water or a basin of water and a towel left out for the guests so that as they arrived, they could come by and grab the towel and, and the water and use that to wash and rinse everything that they had stepped in and trespassed through throughout the day before entering the home and gaining access to the lives of the people that lived there. The other way that it would be done is the bowl of water as well as the towel would still be out there. And in addition to it, there would be a servant sitting there who, as you came up to, they would wash your feet for you. This was done because in in the ancient world, it was understood that as you went throughout your day, there was a regular occurrence of dust and dirt. Not only that, but because of the way the sewage system was, because of how animals were commonly used in transportation, you couldn't walk down common streets without stepping in and having a bunch of that stuff left upon your feet. Those weren't the type of things that you wanted to grace your humble host with, and so you would politely wash your feet from all of the daily residue that was on you so that you could enter in and gain access to the lives of the people that lived inside the home. Because it was looked at as what is on your feet when you come in from the rest of the world can create a barrier and a separation between you and the people that live inside there. Now watch this. Fast forward a little bit in scripture and you see an interesting picture between Jesus and his disciples as they sat in the upper room on the last night that he shared a meal with them. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus stands up from the, from the table and he wraps a towel around his waist after taking his outer garments off. And one by one, he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And then finally, he comes and he gets to Peter. And Peter looks at him and he says, are you really going to wash my feet? Are you really going to tell me? Are you going to sit there and tell me? That there is something between you and me that right now in this moment, this is the thing that needs to be done. That you need to come to me and remove the stuff that I have stepped in throughout the day so that we can be around each other. Why would you do this now? We've already started our meal. We've already started going through the process. I have access to your life. Why are you washing my feet now? Are you really going to do this? Jesus looks at Peter and he responds and he says, Unless I wash your feet, you will have no part of me. Peter says, fine, go ahead, wash my feet, but not just my feet. Wash my head and my hands too. You know what? You might as well do the whole thing. Wash all of me. Because if you're telling me that I need to be cleansed in order to have access to you, then you might as well do the whole kit and caboodle. Do it all. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, someone who's already been bathed does not need to be bathed again except for their feet. Jesus says, listen, someone who has salvation does not need to reattain salvation. But the things that you step in, the trespasses that you have each and every day, the residue that is left on your body from the sin that you have entered into just by living in a world that is broken and fallen, that in and of itself needs to be removed from you so that you can gain access to the level of relationship that I have a desire for you. 
See, without that removal of the dirt, you're, you're selling yourself short. You're removing yourself from me. You're, you're not entering into the level of relationship that I want you to be a part of with me. You have to allow me to come to you and remove this for you. And so Jesus finishes the washing of the feet and then he says something interesting towards the end in verse 14 of chapter 13 in John. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And we read this and I think it's, it's understandable and, and it's, it's obvious to see that Jesus gives this phenomenal example of servanthood and humility where he lowers himself. The king of kings, the prince of peace, lowers himself to do the lowliest of jobs so as to wash the feet of his own disciples. Something completely unheard of in the realm of service and humility. And that is true. But I think there's another layer to this too. Because I think in this, Jesus was modeling what forgiveness looks like at the ultimate level of salvation, as well as the level of daily removal of, of the residues of sin in our lives. And then he gives a command on that, and he says, as you have seen me remove this from you, and thereby symbolize forgiveness at a daily and regular level, I want you to go and do to others. As you have seen me forgive you of your daily residue, go and forgive others of the daily things that they step in and don't even know they've done. Go and forgive others of the ways that they have stepped in and tracked dirt and grime and, and, and gunk and all of this stuff into your life. The ways that they have wronged you, forgive them of it. And notice the other thing that happens in this story too. Jesus got up on his own accord to wash the feet of the disciples. They didn't ask him to. And if we look at this from the perspective of a model of forgiveness, Jesus is not saying, wait for the person to ask for your forgiveness and then you need to freely give it. Jesus says, do this as I have done for you. In other words, get up, go and forgive even without request, even without acknowledgement of a wrong having been done, even without a knowledge that a washing needs to occur. And what an example for us to understand and see displayed here that Jesus shows us that each day we should come to him and be cleansed of the daily residue of our sins and trespasses and then in the same way go and wash everyone in our lives in our forgiveness that has been given to us from Jesus Christ. Whether they know it or not, whether they think they need it or not, it's what we do so that there's no boundary between us and others just as there should be no boundary between us and Jesus Christ. And then Jesus again speaks of forgiveness here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And in this, Jesus shares a parable. And we're going to break it down as we go through it. This is what Jesus says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You see, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he does it 
frequently. This was an ongoing subject, and, and Peter didn't just pull this number out of thin air. It was deliberate, and it's also likely that as Peter was going throughout, there could have been a conversation between him and the other disciples about who was more forgiving or who understood forgiveness better or any number of things. As you've studied Peter or know Peter, you know that Peter likes to just say things that come to mind. And so Peter and the disciples may have had a discussion, an argument, or perhaps he just wanted to use Jesus as a method to show everyone else that he got it, that he understood Jesus, that there was a level to which he understood the Savior and the King that surpassed everyone else. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? And again, he didn't just get this out of anywhere. Back, if you look at uh, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Perhaps what Peter picked up on, if this conversation occurred before Jesus told this parable, was Peter chose to pick up on the number. And he said, seven, that's the one that matters to Jesus. And I just need to prove that that's what I got and that I got that before anyone else did. So he brings it up again. The hard part is, as we're going to see, is it's not about the number, it's about the principle. And so Peter approaches Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? As many as seven times? And a lot of what he's doing here is actually taking rabbinic teaching and and Old Testament theology that had kind of been twisted a little bit. If you go back to Amos, in the very beginning, God speaks to his people and he says, for three things, the Lord will forgive you and for four. And so it was looked at and they created a little equation for themselves. And they said, well, if God can forgive someone four times, far be it from us to be as holy as God, as forgiving as God, and as gracious as God. We don't think of ourselves to be on his level of graciousness and forgiveness, so we will stop at three. Ergo, if someone messes up three times in your life, you now have full permission, according to that teaching, to completely cut them out and remove them from your life if you want to. So what you had was a whole people group really hoping that people would mess up more than two times in their lives. And that way they could just cut them off. They'll go around and say, man, you really hurt me and you do it again. I'll forgive you. That's fine. But you do it a third time and that's it. We're over. I promise you that. Go ahead. Kick me two more times. I don't care that you're a toddler. I will cut you out of my life right now. (laughs) told you to stop that. And Jesus said, if I do it three times, that's it. You're done. And so there was this Pharisaic view of how to forgive people. And so Jesus responds to him. Verse 22, he says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, in other words, in light of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. See, Jesus is telling Peter, it's not about the number, buddy. You've got to quit focusing on the number. Because if you come to me again tomorrow and you say, so I should forgive him 77 times, I'm going to tell you no, not 77 times, but 7 times 77 times. You want to keep adding to this? The point is you never stop forgiving someone, period. That's it. And he says, therefore, in light of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He's not talking about a servant who would live in the house and take care of household duties. He's talking about a servant that would be placed in charge of like a providence within a kingdom. 
And when he talks about settling account, it's not going to someone and saying, hey, you remember that 20 bucks that I gave you? Yeah, I want that 20 bucks back. What he's saying is, listen, I put you in charge of, of a province within the kingdom, and it is now your duty to not only manage that area, but also all of the income that that area represents, such that when I come to you and need that money, want that money, or just want to know how much is there, you need to give an account to me of that money. It is your responsibility. It's as if that bank account is yours, but I own it. And if you don't manage it properly, we're going to have a problem. So here's what happens in the story. The king wants to settle accounts. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now there's two ways of looking at the value of what Jesus is talking about here. The first is to convert the actual value of a talent into today's monetary terms, in which case the first servant would have owed his master around $3.98 million dollars. A talent in today's terms is worth about $398. Multiply that by 10,000 and you have $3.98 million. The second way you can convert this is like this. You can take the principle of the story and convert it into current values with the understanding that a talent is worth about 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. So if you take today's average uh, hourly wages of a laborer of $15 an hour, you multiply that by 2,000 hours per year, you would have an annual income of $30,000 per year. Multiply the $30,000 annual income by 20 years and you get $600,000, which is the equivalent of one talent. Multiply that $600,000 by 10,000 and you come up with a debt owed of $6 billion was what the first servant owed to the king. Easy to say, it's insurmountable. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. You see, back then it was customary where if you owed someone a significant debt, they actually owned you up until you paid that debt off to the point at which if they desired to sell you, your family members and or your possessions, they could do so in the attempt to collect a debt. That was their right and privilege. And so the king exercised his right and privilege and said, I'm going to sell you, your wife, your children, and all your possessions in an attempt to collect on what you owe me. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, the servant knew that there was no way to pay it, and he fell down begging for a chance to simply try. And in this, we see something incredible. The master doesn't agree to the terms of the servant. Instead, he goes beyond them and completely forgives the servant his debt. Isn't it true that the majority of us, if we had it our way, if we were the ones in charge deciding it, we would say, God, if we owe you, let me be the one to work that off and earn it from you. God, allow me to earn my salvation from you. I'd feel more comfortable doing it that way. And yet God looked at us and he said, there's no way you can earn it. This debt is way over your head. It's not possible. So not only will I not let you work it off or do things to earn it, I will forgive it. And now there will be nothing between you and me anymore. And he sends the servant out. In verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
A hundred denarii, if you use that first method of calculation, would be worth about $6.60 to the $3.98 million debt he had just owed. But if we were to take the principle of the story, it could be worth as much as $12,000. $12,000 is not a tiny amount, but compared to $6 billion, it's a much, much smaller amount, especially when you factor in today's economy, the majority of um, debt that people owe on just a car, on one single car, ranges between twenty-seven dollars and $32,000 on average today. The $12,000 is not even half of that. And this is what happens. The first servant, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So now we see the first servant in the same position that his master was once in, and he found someone with a debt, and upon hearing the same exact words that he himself had just finished saying, the servant turns and throws his peer into prison. And what's interesting about this is that when you read the actual quote from the first servant, he just says, pay what you owe. Didn't even know what the amount was, but demands that payment be made. How often have we held a grudge and at some point come to a moment where we've forgotten what initiated it. We just know we're angry. We just feel like we deserve the apology. We deserve someone to repay us. We deserve someone to come and make it better. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, what strikes me here is this. People have seen the grace and forgiveness we have been given. And when they hold that up to the grace and forgiveness that we hand out, it doesn't match up. The people that turned in that first servant were bystanders. Technically speaking, not even really a part of this story. And yet they observed the actions that this first servant was a part of. They knew and realized the forgiveness and grace of debt that this first servant received. And then they saw the level of forgiveness that this servant handed out. And they said, that does not match up and that's not right. But how often do people around us, knowing full well the grace and forgiveness that God provides to us, compare that to the grace and forgiveness that we provide to others and see that it doesn't match up? I think more often than not, we take the grace and forgiveness that God has given us as part of our ministry to continue on his behalf, and they see that we've chopped it up, diced it up, tied strings to it, and put contingencies around it. And that's the version that we hand out to people. See, we will, be a call, we will be called to account for how we have carried the ministry that we received. Did you carry out a ministry of forgiveness and serving and loving? Or a ministry of something else? Because Jesus knows that those who have been transformed by the grace and forgiveness of God see to giving the same thing at the same level as it was given to them. 
Those who have truly been transformed by the grace and forgiveness of God hand out that very same thing to those that they come into contact with. Because of how it's transformed their lives. Because of what it means to them. And finally, Jesus gives us a new command. In Luke 6.31 and Matthew 7.12, Jesus says something very similar in both occasions. In Luke 6.31, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And in Matthew 7.12, he says it this way, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. See, what's interesting is in virtually every culture and religion, even prior to this and up through this, they've all had the negative version of this verse. It's been taught in ancient Asian cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, African cultures, all over the world, they have taught the negative version of this. In fact, Confucius is quoted as saying the negative version of what Jesus just said. It sounds like this. Whatever you do not want to have happen to you, do not go and do to others. It's everywhere. All, all throughout the world, all throughout religions and cultures. And in fact, the negative version was even in rabbinic Hebrew teachings. And then Jesus comes along. And he takes what everyone knew and what everyone was already doing. And he turns it upside down. And he adds the kingdom economy to it. And he says this. I'm not telling you to not do the things that you don't want done to you. Here's what I'm telling you. What you want done to you, go and do for other people. It was the first time that anyone had ever said anything like this before. It was a brand new concept. And what I notice here is this. It describes our Jesus perfectly because Jesus is a God about doing things Jesus didn't come to earth to tell us all the things that we need to stop doing, not do, and no longer do. He came to this earth to tell us all the stuff that we need to start doing in his name because of his name and by his name. Jesus came to us and said, I need you to go and feed the poor or feed the hungry and, and take care of the poor, to give to the poor. I need you to go and take care of the orphans, to take care of the widows. And time and time again, Jesus said, go and do, go and do, go and do. And in a few times where Jesus wanted us to stop doing things, he would say, go and do no more. Because Jesus is a God about doing things. And that's why he took this, the negative that everyone was, had already adopted and was doing, and he turned it upside down and he said this, whatever you want someone to do to you, go and do for them. This places a whole new level of responsibility onto each of us, doesn't it? A whole new perspective about life, a whole new sense of responsibility. What you wish others would do to you, do also to them. You see, anyone can go through life and avoid the things that they don't want others to do to them. I don't want to get punched in the face. So you know what I don't do? Punch someone else in the face especially if they're bigger than me. That's just a rule I live by. I encourage you to adopt that rule. It's gone well with me. But doing that doesn't really exemplify Christ. And to be honest with you, as I look around, I think more often than not, that's the way the majority of Christians live their life. 
not doing the things that they wouldn't want someone to do to them. I wouldn't want someone to force their religion on me, so I'm not going to force it on them and everyone's going to live happy. I wouldn't want someone to do this or do that, so I'm not going to do this or that. And then I don't have to say anything and I don't have to do anything and everyone can just keep going as they've been going. And Jesus says, no. We're not about not doing. This relationship that we're in, it's not about what we're not going to do together. It's not about us getting on our social media sites and standing together and and creating rallies and groups and celebrating all the things we're not going to do anymore. No. Jesus never said, hey, let's make signs and and, and, and let's, let's make groups and form committees and do all of the things together in the name of what we won't do. Time and time again, Jesus said, do this and do that. And if you're too busy doing this and doing that, guess what you're also too busy to do? Not do all the stuff that's gotten us in trouble in the first place. If you're too busy doing, you won't have time to not do. I think we commit ourselves too often to living out the negative version of the scripture. We make sure that we don't do others or do to others the things that we wouldn't want them to do us. And this way it gives us permission to do back the things that they do to us first. (laughs) They open the door, so we might as well. Jesus is a God who says, I want you to start doing things in my name. And it can go from the simple all the way up to the extreme. I want you to stand there and hold a door open longer than is comfortable because you see someone way out in the parking lot who's coming. And you'd like it if someone did that for you, right? So you stand there and you hold the door open. Little things. You're in line in in Starbucks. And the line is long. There's a ton of people in front of you. And for whatever reason, the person in the very front who's ordering their drink apparently has never seen or been inside an actual Starbucks before and is literally reading not only every item on the menu, but every ingredient that that item entails as well. I'd like to take a minute to say I forgive you. And in that moment, you think, I'm going to do for someone else what I wish someone would do for me. And when it's your turn and you get to the front, you say, I'd like to pay for the person behind me because they had to wait even longer than I did. And gosh, that would have been nice for me to do. You're standing out in your front yard. It's 110 degrees outside. You're mowing your lawn. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're sweaty. And you smell something fierce. And you know what you do? You go over and you mow your neighbor's lawn, not because he asked you to, maybe because he kind of needs to himself. But you think, man, if mine was that long, I wish someone would do it for me. And so you go out there and you do it without asking because you do because Jesus is a God of doing not a God of not doing and then you take it to the extremes and you realize that Jesus is calling us to do all kinds of things all kinds of crazy and out of the box things things like become a foster family and take in children who don't have parents or families Things like go halfway around the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through getting up and preaching or anything like that, but to going to a country like Romania into an orphanage where kids are abandoned and left alone and picking up a baby who has relatively no human contact up to this point in its life and just holding her. 
doing the extreme things. Say, I don't, I don't care what everyone else is going to stand up and say, we're going to stop doing that or we're not about doing that. Because you're going to be a Christian and you're going to be a believer that says, I'm all about what God is doing and what God is wanting me to start doing. Jesus gave us the ministry of forgiveness and service. And he told us, he told us to forgive freely without being asked because that's what he did for us. And he told us to serve others not as the church creates opportunities to, not as it's socially acceptable to, not as it's popular to do, but as you have opportunity to do. Just think about it. The person who is constantly doing has to be the person who constantly has Christ as number one in their life and as first in their life. Someone who's willing to say that it's going to be Jesus Christ is first in my life. Everyone else is second in my life. And I'm going to be last. Because that's the only way that can, someone can live out moment by moment every single day doing the things that Jesus is causing them to do. And what a place would that be if each of us took it upon ourselves, the responsibility that Jesus has passed along to us to say, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to forgive freely. I'm going to forgive in the way that I was forgiven. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do and do and do and do and do. Because it's Jesus first and it's others second and I'm fine being last. Well, that turns everything over, doesn't it? So as we close out, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Regardless of where you are, whether you're watching this later online, whether you're watching an on-site Rockland or whether you're right here with me now, here's what I want us to do. Let's take an actual step together. Turn to the people around you and share with them one thing that you learned, stuck out to you, or has challenged you from what you heard tonight. If you don't have someone right next to you, you can write it down. If you're bold enough to get next to someone right next to you, I encourage that. But take this next minute and share with them the one thing that stuck out to you that you learned or that has challenged you tonight. Ready? Go. Here's your next question. Now that you've shared that with each other, share this. What do you want to do about it? Now that you've learned something stuck out or you've been challenged, share with the person next to you, this is what I want to do about it now. Go ahead. A little strange. A little awkward, perhaps, to turn to the people around you and actually have a conversation about the things that were discussed past the point of saying, yeah, it was good. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, his shirt was pink, but you know, that's okay. I can handle that, I think. Yeah, we actually shared things with one another. You know what that means now, right? That means that you are now accountable to one another. That means that as you see one another around town throughout your week or even next week sitting next to the same people, ask each other, how did that go? How can I be praying for you? What's the next step? What else do you need? This accountability that we have towards something so powerful and so challenging, if we honestly motivate and encourage and sharpen one another 
to do these things, to forgive freely and to go and do things that serve other people in the name of Jesus Christ, imagine the change and impact that that would have on this place. Not just this place, but this place. Let's pray.